Welcome to a very special edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, just this morning, I was motivated by an interview that I had today with a business owner in Cleveland, Ohio. He had mentioned that he got his grandmother's life story captured on audio before she passed, and it got me thinking about my father. Back in 2008, after he passed, I was going through his pictures and things in his home and accidentally ran across a handful of mini cassette tapes. It was the last thing I saw in his top drawer, and it was almost by magic accident. On those mini cassette tapes was his life story that he left behind. He did it because someone close to him had died and he was spooked by it. No one realized that he had done it, so I scrambled to find the technology to decode them to pure digital and clean them up the best I could. Then I realized they were not out there and readily accessible for all to dig into. Ultimately, I felt it would honor his life and in turn lend an understanding to my life and the many lives that he touched over his 64 years. This episode is celebrating what I do all the time, which is to get the story from amazing people all over the world and put them down in a forever format for people to marvel at and enjoy. So this is the story of my father, by him, for you. Enjoy. Testing, testing, testing. I've been going to tape on this machine for the last several weeks, but I've kind of been hammered tonight. I don't know why. I got to thinking about it when, when Lee died a few weeks ago, that uh, he started to to write his life story and never got it finished. So I thought maybe you guys would want to know my life history and what happened. Uh, I'm not writing because I don't write very good. I don't spell very good. But I can't talk very good. So I'm going to tell you my story. Oh, and by the way, I guess Leo told you where this tape recorder was. He's really been a good friend to me, and and I know he'll pray for me. But I was born in Brooklyn, September 24, 1943. Born in a tenement house, eight-story house. We lived on the third floor to the left. We had uh, four rooms. We had a kitchen, a bedroom, a bedroom. And they called it a parlor back then. I guess it was a living room. The bathroom was in the kitchen. And my my folks had one bedroom. My sister had the other bed, and I slept in a chair. And I slept in that chair until, until I was about 14 years old. But growing up as a kid in Brooklyn uh, is something that the only way you would ever know it is to, to live it and realize it. It was a lot of fun, a lot of kids, a lot of things to do. Stay busy a lot. Yeah, see, I'm getting blind, but when I, before I got to thinking about making this tape, I had all these things going on in my mind, what to say, and now I can't wait. I'm back. One of the things I remember about when I was a kid was a lot of family. A lot of aunts, uncles, cousins. And every Sunday we would go to my grandmother's house, my mother's mother's house. And we would have dinner and cook. Had a big table. I remember the table was so big that they used to put those uh, wooden horses up and put plywood for the table. Make a great big table and we'd all sit around it and we'd eat and laugh. And that happened about every Sunday. We all got together and 
you know, everybody was talking at the same time. Everybody was yelling, screaming, crazy. But that's the way it was. And, and, and that was the family. Then there was the both sides of the family that uh, everybody didn't like this side of the family. Nobody liked that side. Nobody, everybody had a beef. I guess that's the Italian way. Everybody's got a beef about something. But as a kid, I kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed my uncles. I enjoyed my cousins. I enjoyed going to see my grandmother. And then when I was, uh, I went to Catholic school. I started off at Catholic school, I guess. It was a lady of large uh, Catholic school, and I, I guess I was there until about the third or fourth grade. And then I went to public school, and then they skipped me a year uh, in public school, which they probably never did because I was always the youngest kid from then on the rest of my life, I, uh, which wasn't, wasn't too good. Uh, everybody was older and smarter, I guess. But anyway, I went to public school. The first school I went to was uh, PS 155. And, and the school was about, oh, I don't know, a couple of blocks from my grandmother's house. Grandma uh, uh, Terezine, uh, which was the kindest, one of the kindest women I've ever met in my life. And I would go there every day after school, and she would always uh, have something for me to eat. And sometimes she didn't have very much, but have much, she didn't have very much money. She would uh, make me a sweet potato. They had a, uh, the only heat that they had in that place was uh, a stove. And they would put a gallon of oil. I remember she used to go downstairs, get the gallon of oil. It was like a glass gallon bottle. And she would turn it upside down, put it in the stove. And the stove would be the only heat in the whole apartment in the wintertime. There was no, no hot water. There was uh, no heat, nothing. Freezing cold in there. But anyway, the stove was hot all the time. And she would put a sweet potato on there for me. And while I was in school, that sweet potato... Uh, cooked real slow on top of that stove. And then when I got home from school, she would have a big smile on her face and she, and she would tell me in Italian that she had that potato for me. And I always think, that's right, to this day, I like sweet potatoes. That funny big old fat Italian guy gets emotional and cries a little bit, but here we go again. Uh, I remember that apartment, and my grandfather, he used to hang those buffalo cheeses, used to be, they used to be like balls, and they had uh, wax on them, and a, and a rope and a string, and, and he would have them all, they had like a room, like a, oh, I guess like a porch type deal, and he would have all these cheeses hanging from the ceiling. And he'd be drying them out because he would not eat a provolone unless it was rock hard. Let it age a long time. And he'd have the provolones, he'd have salamis hanging there. It looked like a, it looked like a meat market in his in that pantry. And, and it, it was in the, in the wintertime, it was so cold that nothing would go bad. And he, and he did have a little backyard uh, outside. And, and I remember he he, uh, he built a grape armor. Uh, he put a like a bench in there with uh, the, the uh, vines uh, grew over the, the, uh, the table uh, and, and he would sit out there 
you know, in the summertime, and, and the grapes would be all all through the uh, all through the, 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 the deer. You could see them hanging there, you know. And we would eat them. Like September, I guess it was, they, the grapes were ripe, and they were, they were Concord grapes with the skin on them. And they were real sweet on the inside and, and real bitter on the outside. And then he had his fig tree in the backyard that I, I don't know whether he brought it or somebody brought it, but the fig tree had originally come from Italy. And all the Italian men, they're all Italian men, they had a little bit of land in the back of their apartment building, and they all had a fig tree. They put the fig tree, and they let the fig tree grow, and then in the wintertime, when it got cold, they would all go out there and wrap up the, the, the tree with uh, burlap and, and linoleum and, and everything they could find to keep that tree from freezing and dying. And they put a bucket on top of the top of it. And, and then we, we always had, had the figs, and then he would, he would grow uh, tomatoes in the backyard and peppers and eggplants. And who would think in the middle of Brooklyn with a little piece of land that, that somebody could, could, uh, could grow a little garden? But, but he did. And he, he kind of lived off the, off the land. He, we would go, I remember in the spring, we would go out in the country, and, and he called it, uh, it was Gadoon, which which by doing is, is kind of a, like a celery type uh, green that grew wild. And, and he'd have to have that. And he'd take it and he'd get it. He'd fry it and eat it. And he couldn't wait for spring to come. And then we, we would go and hunt uh, mushrooms. Uh, we would go to the cemetery. That was the only uh, grass land in Brooklyn was at the cemetery. So we would go to the cemetery and pick mushrooms and he knew what mushrooms uh, to pick. And then I remember on Sunday we would get together and he would great big bowls of, of mushrooms with, with with olive oil and, and garlic cut together. They were, they were just excellent. But he would do that all the time. He Anything he could find, uh, uh, he, he would eat uh, everything out of the sea. Uh, we used to go fishing when I was a kid. He, as far as I know, he never owned a fishing pole, my grandfather. He, all he had was a fishing line, and he'd have a sinker, and he'd have a hook, and he'd bait it up, and he'd throw it out in the water, and he'd hold on to that, uh, onto that line, and then when the fish bit, well, the hell of a, the hell of a battle, he'd pull that fish in. He, he wasn't there for sport. He was there to eat. And then he would bring crab traps. He would catch crabs. Uh, and I can remember we used to go out to this place, I don't remember where, it was called the Causeway. And we would go there, we would have to get on the subway, and we'd get on the subway and he'd have uh, crab traps, and he'd have buckets, and he'd have all this stuff smacking people in the head, and, and uh, congestion in that subway people, and, but he didn't care, he'd have all his fish and stuff, and, and then we would ride on the subway and, and then get off, and then we would fish all day, and, and then we'd come back, come back on the subway. And what, what he loved to, to catch more than anything was eels. He loved an eel. And when we would get home, he would he would skin the eels, and then he would fry them, and, and the eels would still be moving in the uh, in the frying pan. It's kind of like a worm. You know how a worm moves when you when you cut it up. And and I remember they were just excellent. But he ate everything. In fact, I, I remember uh, before my mother died, she told me the story that 
I used to find little bones in the spaghetti sauce, and I used to wonder, where the hell are these little bones from? And the little bones was, he used to, he had a bird cage that he put outside, a regular bird cage, and he put uh, bread in there, whatever, and the birds would, would jump in the cage to eat, and then he would run out there, and he'd grab the bird, and he'd take it, and he'd clean it, and he'd put it in the spaghetti sauce. And, and it, I don't know, we ate sparrows, I guess, blue jays, I don't know what we ate. But, but he didn't care, he, he ate everything. Anything that is, in fact, I remember one time we we were uh, fishing, and I was underneath, kind of like a bridge in the bay area, and it was shallow, low tide, and I seen a bunch of uh, shrimp swimming around, and, and I grabbed a head full of them, and I, I ran it over, and I said, Grandpa, look. And, and he said, let me see. And I gave him to him, and he threw the, the shrimp in his mouth, and he ate them alive like that. And I couldn't believe it that he would do that. But he ate everything. He used to tell me, if it comes out of the sea, you can eat it, is what he used to say. And I remember one other time we were fishing. We were at, and uh, he had his little line. We were, in a, we were in a rowboat. And he pulled up his little line, and there was an oyster uh, caught on by the hook. And he brought that oyster up. And he opened it up and he ate it right there. I, I, I thought that was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. But that's the way he did it. He ate, he ate everything. And, and uh, although he wasn't a very happy man either, he was kind of a, a grumpy old guy. He, he never talked to me very much. Even when we went on those trips, he didn't say too much to me. Uh, and he would, uh, he would control me by his eyes. I would look at his eyes if, if I did something wrong. He never had to say a word. All he had to do was uh, work his eyes to me, and I, and I knew exactly what he was thinking, and, and I knew I'd better straighten up if I wasn't doing right. But uh, but those were the, were the good old days, I guess. You know, back, back in those days, everything uh, was kind of uh, peaceful, kind of calm. Uh, I guess the world war was going on, you know, but we didn't know about them. The, World War One, World War Two had ended, and I, I remember somebody was talking. I was, oh, I don't know, ten years old, I guess, something like that. Somebody said something about a war, and I, I said, I thought everybody said the war was over. They said, yeah, it, it, that one did, well, is over, but there's another one started in Korea. I said another war, and then there was a kid next door to us, kind of a heavy set kid, and everybody called him Fatty. Fatarich, and uh, I remember Fatarich got drafted, and he went through basic training, and, and he came home in his uniform, and he was trim, and he looked good and everything, and everybody through the apartment houses were running around. I said, Fatarich is home, Fatarich, and everybody was running out in the streets to, to see Fatarich, and that's the only thing I can remember about the Korean War was Fatarich. And then I guess that I didn't even know it ended, but that war ended. Uh, uh, and then life went on. Let me think what else I need to talk about here. Well, my home life, you know, my 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 mother and my father both worked. My mother worked at a factory. She made the back in those days she made women's underwear, panties. And my dad was a shoemaker. And uh, I think if I remember right, my mother walked to work. I don't think she walked too far to work. 
but my dad, he had to take the subway because he worked in Manhattan. And uh, I remember him taking me that one time. And uh, it's kind of like the old pictures, you see. You go, we went up to fly the stairs. Like, I guess they called them lofts today, but back then, they weren't lofts, they were sweat factories. And you go in there and it was just packed with people and machines and, and uh, everybody working, uh, making shoes and, and shipping shoes out and stuff. Uh, and my dad, he, I remember he, he uh, I don't know, he wasn't really ashamed about being a shoemaker, but he didn't want to ride the subway looking like a, like a shoemaker, I guess. So he would, he would change clothes. He would, he would, uh, wear nice clothes every morning and he'd go to work to change clothes and he'd work all day and then he'd change clothes again and then he'd come home every night. Well, he did that for many, many years and then uh, when we moved out to Long Island, which was in uh, 1957, I started out of junior high school, we moved out to Long Island and uh, he still worked at that shoe factory I don't remember for sure how many years, but I would imagine two or three years anyway after we moved out there. The old man would get up early in the morning, he'd get in his car, he drives down to the Long Island Railroad, which was about, oh, I don't know, about a mile, mile, mile and a half from the house, park his car, get on the Long Island Railroad, and then he'd go into uh, New York City on the Long Island Railroad, I guess Penn Station. And then he'd get off there, and then he'd, he'd jump on a subway, and then he would take the subway for I don't know how long, and then he would get off on the subway, and then he would walk uh, several blocks before he got to where to where he was. And then uh, at night he would do the same thing. He would he would change clothes, get walk, get back on the uh, subway, get back on the Long Island Railroad, get back to the. Uh, train station and then drive home. And his days were, you know, they were long days. Uh, he, he he normally didn't get home at night till, till about 7 o'clock, I guess, uh, through all the traffic and everything. And, and I know he was kind of tired. He was kind of wore out back in those days. Uh, but I'll tell you what, the old man, he, uh, he was a good man. He worked hard. I'll get back to him in a little bit. I, I got way ahead of myself here. Let me back up a little bit. When when I was younger and a kid, uh, like I said, I started off at Catholic school, and uh, we went to a lady at large, and we would we would go to mass every Sunday, and then we would go to classes and all those things. And it was a beautiful church. Uh, lady at large was a was a healer. Uh, story goes that uh, she had appeared in uh, France, I believe it was, and in the, uh, in the church itself, they had a big grotto in the back with the Lady of Lords uh, statue up in it lit up, and, and the, whole, uh, the whole grotto was full of canes and crutches. Uh, they used to have novenas in the church. And then people would get healed. They would they would uh, go in, not being able to walk, and they would walk out. I, I guess a lot of miracles have happened. 
I often wonder if that church is still there today. It probably isn't. The whole neighborhood is kind of is kind of crumpled down. Uh, but anyway, I remember on Sunday after we left church, uh, we would walk home. It was probably uh, oh I don't know six, eight blocks, something like that, to to get home. And uh, the whole neighborhood would smell like spaghetti sauce. All the Italian women would all be cooking spaghetti sauce for Sunday. And that's all you could smell through the whole neighborhood. And back in those days, you know, you would go to confession on Saturday, and and uh, you had a fast, you couldn't eat, and then you, you'd go to church and you receive your communion, and then on your way home, you're really hungry, and then you smell that spaghetti sauce. Everybody's cooking, and you're, you're kind of crazy anyway. You want something to eat. And I remember... Uh, a lot of times, my mother would, uh, when she was frying the meatballs for the spaghetti sauce, she would fry me a meatball, you know, just fry it all the way through, kind of flatten it out, and, and I'd get a hunk of uh, Italian bread, and, and man, was that, was that good. And I guess it was really good cause, because I was really hungry. But the whole neighborhood was all, all Italian people. There was a few, there was a couple of German families that lived across the and I think there was a black family that lived uh, on the street. They were from Jamaica. And I got to know him pretty good uh, growing up. He's a real smart kid. In fact, he, he went on to, uh, went to Brooklyn Tech, uh, which was the, 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 the best, smartest high school in the city. And I always wonder uh, what he became. I, I know he, he really became... Uh, got successful and uh, really a smart kid. But anyway, the, the, the neighborhood was basically Italian to all the old Italian men. They were all greenies, and a greenie is a Italian from the old country, you know. Uh, although they were all proud to be Americans. Uh, Hardworking, they all were proud. And all the stuff you see about the Sopranos and all that, you know, that's, that's all fine and good, but that's that wasn't my life, you know. The, the few people that that uh, were supposed to be tough guys, uh, there were very few, and nobody really paid much attention to them. We knew what they would have, but that wasn't our life, you know. They were all hardworking citizens, and, and they all wanted to become Americans and, and, and love the American dream and educate their children. And for the most part, that's what happened. Those those uh, so-called uh, mafiosa idiots they're, they're still they still haven't progressed they haven't evolved from where they were you know but everybody else you know all the, through the years you know the Italian people have, they've educated their children and their children have gone on just like uh, you guys my family uh, the Italian thing will be gone after I'm gone after the generation's gone it's going to be over you know you're going to be Americans going to be 100% Americans and, and that's what it's all about, you know, the, the tradition of being Italian is good. Uh, it's been bred in me, I, you know, in fact, I, I think back through the years, I used to think in Italian, you know, I, I didn't understand English as good as I did Italian. My grandmother spoke to me in Italian, everybody spoke in Italian, and, and I remember the, the, some of the hard times I had after I left home, Especially when I joined the Air Force, uh, I don't understand what these people are talking about because 
basically an American, and, and I'm taking it to hang it, 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 was a, it was a tough deal. And I'll get back into, into those days later. But, but growing up as a, as a, as a kid was a, was a lot of fun. The, the, the second school that I went to was PS73. But that was the school that Jackie Mason went to. My mother, uh, I think she was a year behind or a year ahead of Jackie Mason. I don't remember. But my sister went to PS73. Uh, Rico went to PS73. We all went to PS73. That, that was the school to go to. It was a junior high school. It was, I believe, seven, eight, and ninth grade, I believe is what it was. And, uh, and then down there, there was a uh, right at the corner of the, uh, I think it was McDougal Street, there was a candy store. And Rico's father, Joe, owned that candy store. It was a candy store. And it was a, a luncheonette, and you went in there, you know, you bought your cigarettes, you bought your sandwich, you get a coat. They had, back in those days, uh, everything was in, in a store like that. There weren't that many stores. Uh, and next to it was a deli, a real, and there was a German, German deli, you know. He, he had the real, the real good, uh, the real good deli food. Uh, but everything, all, all the stores back then, like the, you had a bread store, all they sold was bread, then they had a, the meat store, and all they sold was meat products, you know, salamis, and, uh, all, a butcher shop, all, all, the, all the meat you want, then they had the, the, the vegetable place, the, they sold just fruit, vegetables, and that was it, nothing else, it wasn't like the grocery stores today, and then they had push carts that would come through the neighborhood, uh, some would sell uh, fish, uh, some would sell uh, produce, some would uh, sell watermelons in the summertime, they would come through. And they, they all had, uh, uh, a lot of them, no, they all did. They had horse and wagons, and the, and the horse would pull the wagon down the street, and when the, uh, when the horse would take a shit, everybody come running out of the house, to, to get the horse shit because everybody kind of had a, a little uh, like a flower box uh, outside the window where they would where they would grow their basil and their spices and stuff and 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 everybody would get the horse shit and put it in between put it on their little boxes so their so their herbs would grow better so there was a fight over the over over the horse shit but and all the all the old Italian women they would all sit. Uh, and look out the window all day. That's all they did. They look out the window. They knew everybody in the neighborhood. Everybody would wave. Everybody would talk. Uh, they would yell upstairs. Somebody would be three stories up, and, and they would yell back and forth. It, it was uh, kind of just like the uh, like the old country, you know. Where we were in America, but these old old timers they they lived like they were like they were in Italy. They did the same things they did in Italy. They shopped every day uh, for food. Every morning, the old Italian women would go, and they would go to the store, and they would buy food for the day, and then they would come home, and they would cook it every day. And all they actually had back in those days was an icebox. And, and that was another thing that the, the, uh, the ice man would come by every day. And, and these guys, they, they were big, healthy guys that were strong. And they would carry a block of ice all the way up the stairs, and they would put it in the uh, in the ice box for you. And then you had a little pan underneath the ice box, 
when the ice melted, by the next morning you needed you needed another piece of ice, and then Harry would come again. So you didn't really keep a lot of stuff in the house, you know, uh, a little milk and stuff like that. But you couldn't keep too much because, first of all, the icebox was small, and second of all, you had to worry about the, the ice man coming, so you wouldn't ruin anything. Uh, but those were the way that, that times were back. And we did have electricity, and we, and we did have water. But and I remember uh, we lived on the. Uh, the third floor, and there was a clothesline. The clothesline would be out the back window. Out the back window was a fire escape, and uh, they would and they would holes out back in everybody's yard, and they would uh, put a, uh, like a, a pulley, and they would they would hang the uh, the clothesline over this pulley, and then the the old women they they would. Uh, put their clothes on the slide with a clothespin and, and, the, clo- and the, cl- the clothes would be real high they'd be out there and, they, and that's the way they dry them. They didn't have dryers like we have today. Although those, I can remember uh, back in those days when uh, when the clothes, when you got them, they had that smell to them, I guess from the, from the freshness of the sun and, and uh, being sterilized outside. They were real clean and I guess in those days even Brooklyn was clean. There wasn't the pollution that uh, that there is today. But that's the way we did that, you know. Uh, there was a lot of things that were different. I remember my grandmother. She used to wash clothes. Uh, she used to. She had like a. Oh, I don't even know what you call it. It, it had a ripple deal on it. She would put the clothes on it and, and scrub them all by hand. She, she didn't have a washing machine. And then I remember my mother got a washing machine, and it was like a. Oh, I don't know, like a Model T washing machine. It was clean and clatter, and it had a ringer on it. You would ring the clothes out and stuff. Uh, but there wasn't, you know, nobody had many things. But I, I remember back. It must have been in the late, the late forties. The the appliance stores were, uh, they were selling TVs. The, the little black and white TVs came out. Uh, you know, I don't know what it was back then, probably a dollar down or a dollar a week or whatever the heck it was. And it seemed like everybody in the neighborhood got a TV. Everybody. And we got one. And uh, you you would only get, even, well, in New York you got the most channels. I think we got seven channels, if I remember. I think it started off with three, and then we went to seven channels. And most of the time, uh, there was nothing on the TV, so there was nothing. Most of it was in the evening. During the day, it, it had that uh, picture test screen of an Indian, and it, if I remember right, it would make like a hum or a beep or something. There was some kind of a noise that, that would show this uh, this Indian. And uh, I, I know we used to get so excited that the, the, the picture would roll constantly. It would always roll, and, and you, you just just couldn't get a you just couldn't get a good picture. But that was the beginning of it, and uh, you know we enjoyed. It. We used to watch, you know, Milton Bar or Girls, I guess. And, and, uh, I can't even remember. I, I used to watch uh, when I was a kid. I used to watch uh, Farmer Gray. Uh, it was a farmer, and he was always chasing mice around, and they called him Farmer Gray. And then they did have they did have a, a kid show uh, that was on. I remember they had. Uh, was Andy Devine and 
buggies and gremlins or something on there. And then they had, I remember uh, Winky Dink. They had Winky Dink back in those days. Then they had a Winky Dink screen. You buy a piece of plastic and, and you put it over the TV screen and you film bridges. You draw them on the screen uh, so Winky Dink could walk across them and stuff. And, but that's the way that uh, it wasn't. But you know, the simple life. Uh, kids today, they, they, they don't experience the, the simple things. Everything is uh, everything's complicated with them. You know? Even from the clothes they wore. But when I was a kid, uh, it didn't make a difference what kind of style you had, as long as you had clothes, you know, as long as you had shoes. Nobody had uh, very much, you know. I, I remember I, I get wore leather shoes and the soles would, would get loose and they would flop. It was like a duck going down the street. And, uh, that's something you live with. And I remember uh, we had those U.S. kids. They were, they were the high top uh, sneakers. We got one pair of those after school was out uh, every year. That was it. You know, you got one pair of shoes and then you wore them until, until there was no money. And, and I bet myself, when we went to the store to get clothes, I got like one pair of pants. Although, I blame a lot of that on my mother. She could have really bought me more, but she never really did. But I, I never had uh, never had very many clothes. Uh, maybe that's why I, I try to have a lot of clothes in my life. Uh, never had any underwear, never had any socks. And, and now, you know, I, I, I got to have those things. Uh, just living without them. Uh, everybody had them, you know. You, you, you're embarrassed to go out of the house and you don't have them. I remember when I was growing, my t-shirts would, would be real short. You know, nowadays they like to have you, they want their belly sticking out, but back then, you didn't want your belly sticking out. You know, you wanted clothes that, that fit. But anyway, that's that's another story there. there. But anyway, we, we, we stayed uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, and I think when I graduated from junior high, which was, uh, I think it was June of 1957, we moved out. So, well, let me back up just a minute before we move. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me, it was, I think it was in 1957, uh, I came home from school for lunch one day. We used to get out to home for lunch. I come home, and my mother had a dog there, a little puppy. And, and I said, where did this dog come from? She said, oh, she said I, I'm just holding it for a neighbor. And, and I, I said, no, you're not. That's, that's my dog. And he was uh, rusty. He was uh, half shepherd, half cow, and he was kind of a red dog. And uh, I remember uh, she, she told me, she said, yeah, I was down at the AMP. And the, the pet store was next door, and, and I seen this little dog, and it was five dollars. And she said I bought it. I made a mistake buying this dog. And I said, Oh no, I really want that dog. And I remember I had to go back to school, and I was so excited telling everybody about this uh, dog that I got in trouble. Every the teachers, I went to the principal, I went here, I went there, because I was so excited. I couldn't wait to get out of school that day. Uh, I wanted that dog so bad. I, and I got home, and and, uh, and he was my dog, and, and uh, I took that dog out, and I walked him, and, and I, I took care of him the best I could. He he uh, 
in the, in the uh, kitchen, the, the sink, it had a leg that uh, was underneath the, the, the sink that came down to hold the sink up, I guess. And we used to strap him up there. They didn't want him walking around the apartment. So we all left in the morning. I had to tie him up to this to this leg. And then uh, when I got home at noon, I would take him out for a walk. And, and, then, and then at night, uh, when I got out of school, I would take him home. And we really got close to that dog. He, although, uh, to kind of go back a little bit, I, I've always been kind of a loner in my life. I've never really had a lot of friends. Uh, and, and me and this dog, we, we really grew together. You know, he, he, was, uh, he was my buddy. And uh, <clears throat> we moved out to Long Island. And I told my dad, I said, what are we going to do with this dog out here? Where are we going to put him? He said, don't worry about him. He'll be okay. Because that dog never seen any land. You know, the only thing he seen was concrete. He, he didn't know nothing about grass or, or, or anything. And, and we got there. And although the, the dog, uh, he, uh, he got car sick. He, he, uh, he couldn't ride in a car. He'd throw up and everything. So we had to get some pills from the bed because the ride from, uh, from Brooklyn to Long Island was about 40 miles, and, and that dog puked all the way out there. He just had dry heat. He just couldn't, even with the pill, he just couldn't do it. Well, anyway, we got out there to Long Island. I let that dog out of the car, and he looked at that house, and he knew that he was home. And, and he stayed right on that property. I never, I never had to worry about that dog, although we did. We had a dog house for him, and we kept him tied up there, but he, we kept him loose most of the time, and he stayed right there. And he, he was my buddy. We, we went everywhere together. We did everything. We fished together. Uh, he stayed with me. He, he, he was my buddy. And uh, then, you know, when I left the Air Force, we kind of, we kind of split the sheets, but I really only lived, it seemed like I lived out in Long Island a long time, but I only lived out there three years from when I was 14 to 17, uh, which were three long years. They, uh, when, when we moved out to Long Island, uh, I had come from a school in Brooklyn that, well, by the time I got out, was probably 75% black, and every day was a riot, you know, nobody, Nobody learned nothing. Everybody screamed and yelled and threw things and beat up teachers and threw them out windows and you know everybody just kind of slided through. Well, when when I got out to Long Island, uh, it was a real school, you know, and it was a it was a big awakening for me. I I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. Uh, all these people were were taking uh, uh, these, you know good classes, and I, I didn't even know what they were talking about. I, I had no idea what was going on in school. I had a hard time in school, and, and uh, had a hard time learning, didn't, didn't really know how to study, didn't, just didn't, in fact, I don't know why I know what I do today, uh, what I learned in school. But anyway, I finally, uh, I got out of school, and then I went to work uh, with my mother at the, she worked at a knitting mill. Uh, there in Long Island, they, uh, they made shirts. And I started there and I worked there for a while. And 
I remember one day just standing there thinking to myself, man, am I going to do this the rest of my life? I said, I, I can't handle this. You know, I, I've always, uh, always wanted to get ahead and always, always uh, enthusiastic about, you know, learning and working. Uh, I've always wanted to work. And anyway, uh, they laid me off. I think a dollar an hour, forty dollars a week, and, and taxes. I got thirty-two bucks a week, and, and my mother wanted that. Drove me crazy for my money, which wasn't any money at all, even back then. Anyway, uh, I went to go do unemployment because I was laid off, and I had to go to this town, which was called Bayshore. It's about six miles from Madeline, and. Uh, I had to go down the street to to, uh, to go to the unemployment office, and I, I passed by the Air Force recruiter. And I walked in there, and the guy said, uh, he said, I bet you can't pass this test. I said, what test? He said, this test right here. He said, you, if, if you can't even, if you don't pass this test, I can't even talk to you. And I said, well, it's kind of a funny year. So anyway, I took the test. And he said, well, you passed that one. I'll talk to you for a little bit, but there ain't no way you're going to pass the other test. So I said, well, okay. So anyway, that test, I remember I had to go somewhere. It was about a four-hour test, and I took these tests, and, and, uh, and then I passed that, and he said, well, you're in, he said. If, uh, when do you want to get shipped out? And this was, I remember it was the, uh, the 20th of February, 1961. And uh, I said, well, how quick can I leave? He said, uh, you can leave in a week. I said, that's fine. So anyway, I got home that night, and I, I told uh, my dad, I said, uh, uh, I joined the Air Force. And my, my mother said, you can't join, you're not 18. And I said, I know, you, you guys are going to have to sign for me. And she said, I'm not signing for you. And I said, why not? You don't want me here anyway. And, and my dad said to me, the only thing I've got to ask you is, uh, do you really want to go? And I said, yeah, I really do. I, I really want to go. And like I said, it was the 20th of February. And didn't realize it right then, but that was his birthday, February 20th. And, and I ruined his birthday. Didn't realize it. And I remember we had to go to... Uh, we had to go to Notre Republic, and back in those days, the Notre Republic was uh, in a candy store. So we went to the candy store, put up a sign of papers, and she didn't want to sign them. And, uh, oh, I got mad. I said, God damn it, sign these goddamn papers. And I made her mad, and, and she signed them. And the 27th of February, I was gone. And there's another story right there that I'll, I'll, uh, I'll never forget. My, my grandmother was living with us then. And I remember that morning I woke up. We, we woke up real early. We, we had to leave about about 5 o'clock in the morning to, to, to get into Manhattan to the induction center. We got up early. My grandmother was there and my mother. And I could tell my mother really didn't give a shit whether I, whether I went or not. But my grandmother was crying and she was all upset. And, uh, you know, I was a young punk, 17-year-old kid. I, all, I wanted, all I wanted to do was leave. That's all I wanted. So anyway, 
me and my dad, we, we went, we got in the car and uh, drove down to the, to the train station and got on the Long Island Railroad. Took the Long Island Railroad into New York City, uh, got on the subway, got off the subway, and we went to this place uh, called Whitehall Street. It was a great big induction center in, in, uh, in New York. Big red brick building that must have had, I don't know, eight or ten stories in it. And I remember we walked, we walked, there were stairs, like a courthouse type of stairs, in the front of the building. And I was, I walked up the stairs and, and I turned around and, and I said to my dad, well, I guess this is it. And, and I had a cigarette hanging from my mouth. And I reached my hand out and I shook his hand. And I, I turned around and walked in the building. And I, I regretted doing that uh, my whole life. I, I, you know, I never gave the, the old man any respect. I got a cigarette hanging in my mouth, and, and I shake it, shake my father's hand. You know, we what, what the hell's going through my mind? Anyway, I went to the building, and uh, I sat there, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. I figured something's going to happen. We, and we were sitting on those benches like like you have in a courthouse, you know, those wooden benches. And we sat, we sat, we sat. And uh, finally it was lunchtime, and the guy said to me, uh, you, you want to eat? I said, well, yeah, I guess, you know. So he said, here, here's a, here's a ticket. Uh, go down here, there's an Army and Navy uh, chow hall, and take this ticket in there, and I'll give you free lunch. I said, okay. So I go down there, and I go through the line, and they had those metal trays, you know, like they have in the military. I've never seen a metal tray before. And the guy, he cut off a slice of ham and he put it on that tray and he put red cherry sauce on it. And I said to the guy, what the hell is this? He said, that's your lunch. I said, you put cherries on ham? The only ham we ever ate was in a ham sandwich, boiled ham. I, I didn't know nothing about no ham, cherries or anything like that. And I, I got through the line and I set the tray down at the table and I walked out. I didn't want to eat that. I went to a, it was a hot dog stand. You know, New York hot dogs. And I went out there and I got me a hot dog with sauerkraut on it, got me something to drink, and I ate that. And then I went back in the building and I sat down. Well, and then we waited again. We waited and we waited and waited. It was probably one of the longest days of my life. Then that afternoon, late in the afternoon, they came in and they got us and they said, you're all going to be sworn in. And I remember they took us in a room with the American flag and then we swore to the table. They turned the tape over. Anyway, uh, they uh, they loaded us on two buses after we got sworn in. They took us to Newark, Newark Airport, Newark, New Jersey. And they now it's about, I don't know, 7, 8 o'clock at night, something like that. And they they put us on a, on a what was that, a C-54. I believe it was a 54. It had four engines on it. Anyway, I had never been on an airplane in my life. And uh, we got on that plane at Newark and we took off. And we flew all night. All night. And we, we left uh, New York, you know, it was February 27th. And it was freezing cold. There was snow on the ground. But uh, a few days before I left, uh, it snowed so bad in New York that they closed the city down. Well, anyway, we get on the airplane and we go and we get down there in the morning and and, and I could look out the airplane and, and we're coming in for a landing and I see green grass. I said, what the hell is this? 
So we get down there to San Antonio, plane lands, and we get on a bus, and boy, basic training started. Boy, they started yelling at us and screaming at us, and we were jumping and flipping and stuff, and we were all dressed in, in you know, heavy, heavy winter clothes. We had sweaters and coats and everything from freezing, and now we're down there, and it, it's hot. And when, when you when you go into well, in the Air Force, I don't know about the other, but you go in, you don't get your uniform for a couple of days. You walk around uh, in civilian clothes, and, and uh, everybody calls you rainbows. And, and the reason for that is that you all different colors of the rainbow. Everybody's got different colors on and stuff. And it takes, like I said, a couple of days to get your uniform. But I remember that morning when we got there, they took us to the chow hall to get something to eat. And, and, uh, I get in there and I got that metal tray again and, and this guy puts a big soggy boiled potato on on my tray and I said to myself, boy, this is going to be tough. There ain't no way I can eat this stuff. So anyway, then they put that, that shit on the shingle on my plate and I said, what the hell is this? Somebody already ate this. I want this. Well, anyway, uh, the food was, was tough. When I went in, uh, when I got, uh, one of this, I was 207 pounds when I went in. And uh, I, I just I just couldn't eat much for a while. I, you know, they had us running and jumping and flipping and doing all the stuff that you're gonna do. And, and, and I kind of thought it was funny at first, uh, uh, all this yelling and screaming, I, I, I you hit in your face. I, I kind of thought they were kidding around, but I, I found out real quick that they weren't kidding around, they were serious. Uh, then about two days, we went and got our uniforms. I remember we went to, in this great big building, and they strip you naked, and then they start you off. Uh, the first thing they give you is underwear. <laughs> and then as you go along, they give you pants, they give you a shirt, but they give you more than one, but they give you one to put on, and then they give you a duffel bag, and, and you throw the rest of your stuff in this duffel bag, and, and you go through the line, and. And the guy kind of sizes you up, and, and uh, they throw uniforms at you. And, and uh, they threw uniforms at me that, that uh, the whole Hogan could wear. I never seen such big uniforms. Well, anyway, you, you had to kind of live with what you live with. I, I remember they they gave us uh, two pair of boots, combat boots, uh, a pair of dress shoes, and then you had a pair of sneakers and shower cloths and stuff like that. But anyway. Uh, The, it was the most clothes that I uh, that I ever had had in my life at that point. I, I I had I had any I had summer uniforms. I had winter uniforms. I had I had a duffel bag. I, it was so heavy I couldn't even carry it. But uh, which in a way was good. It was it was a lot of clothes that I that I never had had. But anyway, uh, we, we went we got all our, all our uniforms and got and got settled in and then the training started all the yelling and all the screaming and uh, we really run. I never run so much in my life. We, this uh, sergeant, if we screwed up, uh, we'd have to run around a track, a mile track. And I don't know how many mile tracks we run around. Well, while I'm doing all this running and not eating, and, and uh, I'm really getting in shape. And, and, and I don't even realize I'm getting in shape. I just, I just know that I'm getting healthy. Although I smoked, I started smoking when I was 
nine years old, and, and by 17, I had a pretty strong habit of, uh, you know, I'm probably the smoking, uh, even, even then, uh, 17, uh, over a carton a week. And, you know, and then, then we'd run around and, uh, anyway, I was down there about, let's see, I guess four weeks, and then they were, they were cutting orders, and uh, I was supposed to go to uh, aircraft and missile maintenance uh, is what they were going to have me do. Well, one of the guys that uh, that I was going through it, he didn't like me. One of the other guys. Anyway, he he we used to have a little bag. In fact, the bag's still in the garage. That little that little Air Force bag. They call it an AWOL bag, and you had to keep that uh, at your foot locker, you know, empty. Could have nothing in it. And uh, he threw paper in it. And when we had the inspection, the sergeant seen the paper, got mad at me, and got real mad at me. And then that uh, that day we went out on the drill field, and anyway, he's what they call setting you back. Uh, setting you back was they set you back a week into another group of people for training uh, that you weren't up to par, you know, so you had to go back a week and then and do that week over. Well, by doing that, I got in with a whole new bunch of guys. All the guys I was with were, we were all from New York and New Jersey. Now I'm in with a bunch of yokels from everywhere, you know, all these rednecks and goofballs. And anyway, so I went with, with uh, uh, I went in with those guys. Well, I was there with them about a week, I guess, and, and I was really tired. They were making me, they would get me up, uh, I'd go to sleep at uh, 9 o'clock at night, they'd get me up at 10, and I'd have to pull KP till, uh, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning, and then go back to bed, and then wake up at 5, and I was just beat, I was just really tired. Well, anyway, this one, I was on barracks guard from 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I lived on the second store, second floor of barracks, and uh, barracks guard, you, you walk around, uh, with the flashlight and you make sure there's no fires or everybody's asleep and that there's no trouble in the barracks. Well, anyway, I go up to the second floor and I see my bed and man, I'm just beat. So I'm thinking, I'm, I gotta lay down a minute. Well, anyway, I lay down. Next thing I know, the sergeant is over my head screaming at me because I guess I fell asleep and, and, and I didn't wake up. He took my dog tags, he pulled them off my neck and he threw them away. He said, you're not going to need these anymore because we're going to shoot you. I said, oh shit, now they're going to shoot me. Well, he was a staff sergeant and uh, we went to chow and everything. We come back and the, the, the head sergeant was a tech sergeant. Well, now I had to go see him. So anyway, they called me up to their room and you had to, you know, you had to knock on the door and you know, they can't hear you, and then you gotta knock real loud so they can hear you, and, and they say, what do you want? And you tell them your name, rank, serial number, and, uh, and they, they tell you to come in, and you go in the room, and well, they went in there, and boy, they yelled at me, they were telling me they were gonna shoot me, they were gonna do this, they were gonna do that, and, and, and they ripped my T-shirt off me, and, and then uh, the one sergeant kicked me in the nuts, and then I went down, and then they both just beat the shit out of me. Well, I knew from that day on I wasn't going to sleep on marriage card again, and I never did. 
but uh, they, they, they flat scared me. I, I, uh, I kind of thought that maybe they were going to shoot me, you know, but, but you never know. Well, anyway, the, uh, went through the training and, and uh, we graduated and we got our stripe and, and then we got our orders and we were in a big room. I remember all the guys were there and, and they would call your name and they would say, such and such, you're going to be whatever number it was, you know, and, uh, 55, 18, 21, whatever the heck it was. And, and nobody really knew what the numbers were, but they'd look at a book. If, if the sergeant didn't know what it was, he would look at a book and he would tell you, well, that's what you're going to do. And it, well, that's what you did. Well, anyway, they came to me and I said, uh, what am I going to do? Sergeant said, boy, you really got it made. I said, what? He said, you're going to make experimental aircraft out of wood. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to make model airplanes out of wood for experimental. I said, man, that's just great. I got really excited. I said, that'd be a lot of fun. Well, to back up a minute, they, they, they called me in and they said that I could, I had two choices. I could be uh, uh, a photographer or a fireman, I think it was. And I said, I don't want to do either one of them. I, well, what is that? Because photography is something that I've liked my whole life. And that was probably the worst decision I ever made in my life. And I said, no, I don't want either one of them. They said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't care what I do. They said, well, we'll pick something out for you. So anyway, I get this. And then I went home on leave. And then I came to, uh, to Richard's Cabarro, which is, you know, right here. And uh, nobody knew in New York. I tried to get an airline ticket to here. Nobody even knew where it was. Well, anyway, I get here. And I get all settled in, I get signed in and everything. And uh, I go to my squadron, it was 328 Civil Engineering Squadron. And uh, they said, uh, well, you wanted to do carpenters. Carpenter? They said, yeah, you're going to be a carpenter. I said, hell, I don't know nothing about carpentry. That's what we're going to teach you. They said, but we don't have any room in the carpenter shop for you, so we're going to make you a painter for a while. A painter, yeah. Anyway, I painted everything. I painted buildings. I painted radar sites. I painted baseball fields, uh, the wooden fences on the base. I painted everything. I never painted so much. I think I painted, I don't know, it was months. I don't know how many months it was, but it was too long. I know that. Well, then finally they said, well, you're going to go to the carpenter shop. And I remember they said, well, you got to go over to supply before you become a carpenter. I went over to supply, and they gave me these tools. You know, I, I could have built an ark with the tools there. I mean, planes and swords. And I've never seen so many tools in my whole life. I didn't even know how to use them. But anyway, they gave me all these tools, and here I go. I go down, and, and I report uh, to the carpenter shop. Well, the sergeant was a staff sergeant. <coughs> I'll never forget his name. was Harry Surface. He was a Greek from Massachusetts. And he hated me. And, and he was bucking to be tech sergeant. He was a staff. And he couldn't get that other stripe. And he was grumpy. All the time, he was grumpy. And all, every day, he got on me. I never had so much trouble with an individual in my whole life. Uh, he did, uh, I've told some stories about what he, what he had done to me. Uh, 
the, the, the biggest one, I guess, was there was a closet hut uh, right outside our compound, and he told me he wanted me to go out there and put uh, tar on each nail head. You know, there's a million nails in a, in a Quonset hut. And I said, well, how the hell do you expect me to do that? He said, throw a rope over the Quonset hut, and, and, uh, and you climb up with, with the five-gallon bucket and, and, and do it each one. And I said, well, I'd rather go to jail than do that. He said, what did you say? I said, you heard me. I'd rather go to jail. I ain't doing it. So he took me to the colonel. Colonel said, what's the matter? I said, I ain't going to be climbing on that building with one hand and, and carry a five-gallon bucket of tar and, and, and put tar on each one of the nail holes. I can't do that. And the colonel looked at the sergeant. He said, Sergeant, is this necessary to be done? He knew he was busting my horns. And uh, the sergeant said, yes, sir, he, it needs to be done. So the colonel gave him a funny look, and he picked up the phone, and he called the motor pool. And uh, he told them, he said, I want you to set a cherry picker over here. And they set a cherry picker over, and, and I got in that little boom of the cherry picker uh, with the five-gallon bucket and, uh, and with a driver, and I operated that cherry, that cherry picker, and I did the... I did the whole building. It took, it took weeks to, to get it done, but I got it done. But I, but when I got done, I think I was in more trouble with this guy that that, that I ever was. Uh, there was a room, oh, I don't know how big a room, a pretty good sized room. They used it for a storage room. It, it had uh, nails in it, it had screws, it had door closes, it had Venetian blinds. And had all the stuff that the carpenter shop would use, you know, hammers, screwdrivers, all just all kinds of stuff in there. Well, anyway, he was mad at me. He told me he said, "I want an inventory of that whole, uh, that whole room. I want to know how many nails, how many screws, how many of everything is in there." I said, "I'll be damned." So I went in there and I'm doing all this. Well, his name was Harry, and and I wrote all of it. Where he, where I, I didn't think he could see. I wrote, I had one of those felt tip pens. I wrote, Harry eats shit. Harry is a shithead. All this stuff I can't even tell you. I wrote, wrote it all over that room. Well, when I got done with the room, he, he really couldn't prove that it was me. So he, he really couldn't do much. So about a, I don't know, several weeks went by, and, and yeah, one day he was real nice to me. And the, the saw blades, uh, they used to put them in uh, round pieces of plywood to keep the saw blades from getting cutting anybody or getting dull. Anyway, he said, he said, Joe, come here. I said, yeah. He said, do me a favor and, and write saws on here for me. I said, okay. I took the felt tip pen and I wrote saws. He said, I got you, you son of a bitch. Anyway, he had me scrub that whole world down, every bit, every piece. Oh, that guy, in fact, the happiest day of my life was when he got shipped out. And, and he never did that tech sergeant, and I hope he never did. But the, the, the four years that I spent out there at Richard's Cabarro were, were probably the best years of my life. I, I, uh, I loved the military. I enjoyed it. Uh, I guess... You know, I was gung-ho, I guess. I, I loved wearing the uniform. I, uh, 
I had a love salute. I love salute the offices. I, I and, and even at night when uh, what they called uh, retreat, I guess it was. Or when they took the flag down, I can't remember what it was. But it, when when the flag came down at night, uh, if you were sitting in a car or if you were in a building, you would not have to salute the flag. And uh, you could hear the wreckage start playing the national anthem, and uh, you knew that you had to snap to and salute the flag in the direction of the flag. And everybody would, would a guy would, they would scatter. They would either, they would jump in a car or, or run in a building as fast as they could so they wouldn't have to uh, salute the flag. But I never ran. I, if I was in a car, I would get out. Uh, I enjoyed that. I thought that was uh, something I needed to do. But anyway, I uh, I knew after you know I went in as a kid. I was 17. So the years that I spent out there is, is where I, I really grew up. I, I really uh, uh, you know got myself together. Uh, became a man uh, uh, thinking thinking the right way and, and doing things right. I, I, I learned all that from the Air Force. I, I didn't have any uh, any formal training before I went in. I, I uh, just a just a punk kid, but but the Air Force taught me a lot of things. Uh, taught me how to be a gentleman. Uh, uh, a lot of good things uh, I learned. Uh, and like I said, I, I really did uh, enjoy myself. I I loved. Uh, I, I never did fly a lot, but. I always loved the airplanes. I, I loved to watch them. I loved to hear the motors run. I, I, I even loved the smell of flight fuel. I, I loved everything about it. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, I think back, maybe one of the, the directions I should have followed in my life was maybe to stay in the Air Force for 20 years. Uh, but I, I had that hungry uh, uh, desire to, to make it. I, I always wanted to make it in my life. I, I wanted to make uh, money. I wanted, uh, I wanted it all, but uh, I never did do it. But I still have that burning desire, but uh, I can't do much about it. My, my body won't uh, won't let me. If I if, if I could go to work today, it uh, it'd be the happiest day of my life. But anyway, uh, I got to tell you the, the, the story. You know, I, I started, you know, meeting some girls and having some fun and going out. Uh, you know, times were simple, uh, uh, and especially in Kansas City, driving, uh, uh, driving restaurants all over the place, driving movies. Uh, people's thinking was simple back then. Every, everything was 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 simple. And and I want to tell you the story uh, about your mother, uh, how we met. And, uh, and what had happened. And some things that she uh, don't know to this day what, what, what had happened, but uh, I remember it was a Saturday night and, and I walked into the USO. It was downtown on Grand somewhere. And there was a dance going on. And, and I walked in there and the first person I spotted was her. And she had a big smile on her face and real blonde hair. And, she was dancing and she jumped a lot. She used to like to jump and she 
he was a pretty good dancer and, and uh, just full of life. Just and I, I, I looked at her and I said, man, oh man, look at that girl. I sure like to get to know her. Anyway, uh, I didn't really act on it too much. I I, I had her on my mind and, and uh, thought about her a lot. Uh, I, I didn't see her for a while, but I remember having a dream. Uh, right after I met her, and, and, and I dreamt that, that we got married in this dream. You know, and, and, and at that time in my life, I, I had no no desire or thought about getting married. Well, anyway, uh, I had a good friend of mine, not a good friend, a guy that I knew at the base, uh, that she dated. She went out on a date with him, and they went out that night. And boy, I, was, I, I stayed in the barracks that night. I just waited for him to come back because I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I didn't know how serious they were going to be. And, and he came back, and and, uh, and then I, I uh, oh, I know what happened. And then it was close to New Year's. That's what it was. And, and they were going to go out on a date. And I told I told him. I said. Can, can she fix me up with somebody for, for New Year's? And, and uh, he said, well, I'll ask her. And, and uh, she said, yeah, I got this friend of mine, Diane. So anyway, we went to the, uh, remember we went to the, uh, I guess the NCO club, or the Airman's club, I don't remember, some club out there at the base. And I had a pint of uh, Four Rose whiskey. And I'll be damned, they, I had it in my coat, my jacket pocket. And they caught me with it. They took it away from me. Well, we went in there and we drank a beer. And uh, her girlfriend, Diane, got just drunk as a skunk. And then we left there. And I don't remember how it happened. Uh, oh, I, a friend of mine had an apartment or something. And, and we went there and my car broke down or something. I don't remember that. The, I had a flat, or it was cold, it was January, it was 10 below zero, and, and we all spent the night in this, uh, in this apartment. Uh, and then I, I, then I didn't see her again, till, well, that year, uh, I, I got blood poisoning. I was in the hospital. And I got out, she was in the hospital, she had tonsils taken out. And I went into her in the spring. And uh, I said to her, uh, oh, I know what she said. She said she, she had her tonsils taken out and her throat was sore. And I said, well, I noticed, I got this Italian guy at the hospital, Sakati. I said, I bet I can get some throat lozenges for you. And she said, well, that'd be nice. So anyway, I went in there, he gave me a big box of throat lozenges and, and I gave it to her. And, and uh, and anyway, then we went to a party that one night. Uh, this is kind of blurred, but we went to a party, and everybody thought we were together, and, and we weren't. We were we were with other people, or alone, or I don't remember now. But anyway, uh, I asked her ask her out for a date. Uh, she said, "Yeah." Well, I had that '56 Ford convertible, and uh, we had a date. And I'm going down the highway, and I just got my car out of the body shop. I had a new hood put on it, new convertible top, because the hood had flew up on it before. 
Well, anyway, going on to the first day, my, my 56 Ford convertible is looking good. It's all clean and shiny. And I put a new interior in it, new hood, new top. I mean, it was looking good. I'm going down the highway. I was driving about 75 mile an hour, and the hood flew up again and went through the convertible top. Almost killed me. Anyway, I turned around. I, I, I beat that car so bad uh, with my fist that my hands were bleeding. And uh, I got back to the I got back to the base and I called her and I said I can't make this date tonight because uh, my hood flew up. Well, she laughed at me. She thought it was funny. Well, I really got mad then. So I said I'll be down. I jumped in the car and I took off again. And I'm going down the highway, really going fast. Now the hood flew up again. Now this time. Not only did it fly up, it ripped right off the car. And the only thing that was there was a uh, there was a piece of metal where I couldn't hardly see the out of the car uh, where the hood was. And, and we're going down the road, like I said, the, the convertible, the hood went through the convertible top. And now it started raining. I said, hold it, what, what else can go wrong? Anyway, I went down to the house and I don't know if we, we, I don't know what we did that night. I, probably not too much. Uh, it was raining and, and stuff. And, and then, then I went back to the, I asked her out again. I said, this was like on a Wednesday. And I said, uh, you want to go out someday on a picnic? Because this Tang guy, Sakati, he, he was getting ready to get married and, and he wanted to go out to Jacomo for a picnic. She said, yeah, I'll go. So anyway, we all jump in the car. And we go out to Jacomo, we go on a picnic, and, and uh, we leave the Jacomo and I'm going out of the road, and my, now my transmission goes out of this car. And, and they were, the other couple was in the back seat, she was in the front seat with me. And I just got out of the car, didn't say a word, I walked down the street, went up to a telephone pole, and started punching it, like a maniac. And uh, I left the car there, I don't remember how we got around, but we did somehow. But uh, I went and got the car the next day, and it kind of motivated a little bit. And then I, I, I had to trade it off, and I bought a, a 57 Studebaker, which used more oil than it did gas, but but it got me around, you know, for a while. Uh, and she had, uh, mom did, she had a 56 Chevy convertible, uh, powder blue, uh, blue and white with a white top, and a, just a real pretty car, just a real pretty car. And uh, then we started, we, we started dating uh, for a while. And uh, I remember one night we went to a, we went over to one of these guys, one of the guys that I knew that was married. We went over to his house. And we, and, and I got drunk, and uh, we were driving down the road, and I asked her if she'd marry me. And, and she said she would. I said, and I woke up in the morning, and I called her, and I said, do you remember what I said last night? She said, yeah. I said, oh, shit. So anyway, that was, uh, I guess that was must have been in 1964 sometime, or I guess, I don't know. And then we decided we were going to get married, and we were going to get married while I was in the Air Force. And then 
I told my grandfather we were going to get married, and, and uh, he said uh, he convinced me that uh, we should wait till after I got out of the Air Force. And I, yeah, I said that's probably a good idea. And then, and then I got out uh, February uh, 1965, and uh, I had a little apartment at 31st and Grant. The uh, the bed was in the closet. What they called them kitchenettes back then. Uh, you had a little cooking area, a toilet. The living room had the bed in, in, the, in the closet, and uh, and I, I, I lived there till till uh, till we got married. We I got out in, in February, and we got married in uh, July. Uh, but anyway, I lived in that, that little apartment by myself, and. Uh, didn't have a job. In fact, the, the, the first job that I that I took was at a, uh, well, I, it, was a it was a week to the day after I got out. I got out of service on a Thursday. This was the following Thursday. And I went to work, uh, it was like a shipping center where they ship stuff out, magazines and stuff, I don't remember. It's $1.65 an hour. I went there, I got hired in the morning, and the guy said, when do you want to come to work? I said, I'm going to go home and change clothes, and I'll come back. I'll go to work right now. He said, well, you can start in the morning. I said, I want to start right now. He said, okay. So I went back. I, got, I started work. I worked that afternoon, and I said to myself, if i got to do this for a living, I'll go back in the Air Force. Well, anyway, I quit that job at, at the end of that day. And then the next job, I read a, a, an ad in the newspaper. It said, young Catholic men, uh, make a barrel of money. So I called this number, and it was a guy, uh, he was staying at the YMCA in Kansas City, Kansas. I went over there and talked to him, and he was selling a mag He was selling subscriptions to a magazine called St. Anthony's Messenger. And what you did was you, you got the list of all the people in the parish, and then you went to their homes and you sold subscriptions to the St. Anthony's Messenger, Anyway, I, I did that for a while, but I didn't even know where, you know, I didn't know my way around Kansas City, and I was over in Kansas City, Kansas, and I didn't know where the heck I was. I couldn't find the places where I was going, and really was getting frustrated, and anyway, I didn't do too good at that. But I, I did sell some subscriptions. Uh, and, you know, you had to walk around, get people rosary beads, and everybody thought I was studying to be a priest, you know. But anyway, uh, that I didn't. That I didn't work. That was. That had to be uh, in March, I guess. And then uh, I was running out of money. Uh, the World Fair was going on in New York then, and uh, Susie's aunt and uncle that lived on Ward Parkway, they were uh, they were going to New York for the World Fair, and I was down to fifty bucks. And I asked Susie, I said, "You think they'd take me to New York?" And she said, yeah, they will. And uh, I got a job. I got a job at Canada Dry. Just at the skin of my teeth, I got this job. And they started me off at $400 a month in uh, a new car. And man, I said, how sweet it is. And I, I went to work for them selling Canada Dry, which was a really a tough job. I, I started uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. I got home. 
eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, worked hard all day. Did, he used to run 40 to 60 stops a day, selling this Canada Dry and all this stuff, going like a banshee. And then we, then we got married, and uh, I did pretty good uh, selling Canada Dry. I was averaging about $850 a month, which is way above the, you know, the national average at that time. People weren't making that much money, so I did pretty good. And, and then one day, me and the boss got into it over something, and I quit. And uh, and I said, what are we going to do now? And I didn't know what I was going to do. And then she needed a vacuum cleaner. She was begging me for a vacuum cleaner. And I said, well, let's go to Sears and just look at one, because we can't buy one now, because I don't have a job. So we went down to Sears, and the guy standing there, he said uh, something about buying it tonight. I said, I can't buy nothing. I, I don't even have a job. He said, you want a job? I said, yeah, I need one bad. He said, uh, why don't you work here? They need somebody. And I said, well, yeah. Anyway, uh, I interviewed next day. and They hired me selling sewing machines. Uh, that was in 1966, I guess. Yeah, the end of 66. Anyway, I went to work selling sewing machines. And, and the first year that I sold sewing machines, I made $9,600, which was a lot of money back then. And then a guy came to work there that uh, had been in the car business. And man, he talked to me about the car business every day. He said, man, he said, you could make a barrel of money in the car business. Anyway, uh, I decided, well, maybe I will go in the car business. What really had in the back of my mind was, I really wanted to go to work for Allstate Insurance Company, and the only way I could go to work in Allstate was to be gone for 90 days from Sears because they wouldn't hire you right away. You had to be gone from Sears before they would hire you. So I went to work for, I figured, well, I'll go sell cars for 90 days, and then I'll come back and, and uh, go to work at uh, Allstate. Well, the first week that I sold uh, cars, I made $380. And I remember I came home and I told Susie, I said, we're going to be rich. I know it, we're going to be rich. And that Sunday, we went out, I bought a 25-inch Zenith color TV. I said, there ain't no stopping me now, huh? I'm really, I'm really going, well, anyway, I started making good money uh, selling cars. And 90 days was up, and I said, I'm not going to go to work for Allstate. I'm staying in this car business. And I sold those wagons. Uh, was doing good, uh, doing real good, and, and uh, I must have been, let's see, I got out of service when I was 21, I must have been about, now about 25, 26, and we bought our first house. We bought that house over in Shawnee. Uh, I was making good money, and, and uh, uh, we did good. And, uh, and, and then we kind of fell on hard times, which I guess we did most of our lives, you know, it's a little bit of good, a lot of sour, but anyway, uh, there was a shortage of Volkswagens. The, there was a dock strike that wouldn't let any Volkswagens in, weren't getting any cars, which meant I wasn't making any money. I kind of got in trouble and, and uh, got behind on the bills, got myself in a pickle, that time went on, and then but anyway, uh, John Garlick, he bought the uh, VW dealership in Lawrence, 
and they offered me a job as a new car manager there. And I said, well, so anyway, I commuted for about seven months, uh, driving back and forth to Lawrence, making real good money, got out of the hole. We sold the house in uh, Shawnee. We, we moved to Lawrence. Uh, we lived at, we moved in a real fancy, uh, I guess a townhouse, what you call it. And we lived there for, I don't know, a couple of years, I guess. And then, uh, and then we moved out the country. We moved out uh, that house uh, out on three acres. And uh, that was really good living. I really enjoyed that. that and then things really got tough. Uh, I don't remember exactly what happened, but a lot of things was going. This was 1974. A lot of things was going on. Uh, uh, the gas crunch had hit. The economy was turning upside down. Uh, everything was just kind of crazy. But you know, uh, Nixon had everything screwed up. And anyway. Uh, we left Lawrence with a tail between our life and uh, came back to Kansas City and uh, things were tough for for a long time after that. We, I don't think we ever recovered from that uh, for a long time. Uh, we lived in Parkville. Things were really tough. Uh, I started selling Dadsons and I did good, but we were so far behind the eight ball and Things were so tough that it was just tough to get ahead. Then, uh, then I thought uh, I was talking to Rico about the macaroni business. Well, I thought, well, I could really get rich, get that macaroni distributed here and sell it all over the Midwest. And uh, anyway, I got into that. Uh, I did good. I I, I sold uh, a lot of it, but. Uh, didn't have enough product, didn't have enough money, didn't have enough nothing to, to, to get things going. If, if it would have been set up right, uh, I would have made a, made a lot of money at it. But as it turned out, I didn't make much money. In fact, we lost our ass. We got evicted. Uh, we lived with Tony Bernardi for 30 days, which, what was that tough 30 days for? I tell you, that you really got to swallow your pride. Uh, it was a cold winter. I had one pair of shoes. Uh, they were soaked from working, working out of the used car lot. Uh, they were just soaked through and feet freezing. And, uh, just terrible, terrible times. I, I was drinking a little too much then. I just was uh, kind of crazy, you know. And then, then finally, uh, I got enough money to. Uh, get our own place. We got that place over on the ridge. And uh, well, I told a story about the other guy who was fresh from New York. And so he wouldn't check my references, you know. I was really in bad shape. And, and we lucky we even got in there. It was just, uh, I, I dug up every penny I could to, to come up with the uh, deposit in the first month's rent. And, uh, and we moved in there. And I, I, I remember the the bedroom walls, uh, the master bedroom, the walls were all dirty and greasy and filthy and, and uh, we didn't even have enough money to buy a gallon of paint. I, I, I was never so disgraced or, or felt so 
man in my whole life. Uh, no good at that, but you know, uh, times were bad, but we all pulled together, you know, and we had one one toilet, and uh, and we made it, you know, and, and you kids pretty much grew your life up in that in that place, uh, uh, and and there were some tough times. Uh, uh, I was juggling all the time, you know. I it, it, it really bothered me and worried about you kids not eating or or not having a place to, to sleep. Or, uh, it, it just drove me nuts. Uh, like I said, that went on for a while, and, and uh, I don't know why I'm talking about money. That's all I seem to talk about. A lot of other things, a lot of good things had happened uh, in my life that uh, that I forget about. I, I, I always think about uh, I think about the money today. I worry about uh, paying this bill, paying that bill, uh, trying to get ahead, trying to do this, trying to do that. But I remember the days. Uh, uh, you know, the good days uh, when uh, uh, Mom got pregnant with Joanne for the first time. I, I was never so excited in my life when, when I knew she was pregnant. I had, had, uh, uh, watched that belly grow and, and, uh, and that being there, you know, when, when Joanne was born, uh, never so happy in my life. Uh, I, I can I think about... Uh, today uh, like it was yesterday. I remember her uh, little and crying and she had little nails and, and she scratched her face uh, and they, they had to cut her nails right after right after she was born because uh, she was scratching her face. And then when, uh, when Anthony was born uh, I remember that like it was yesterday. I, I remember taking mom to the hospital and uh, the nurse told me, she said, there's not much you can do here. Uh, why don't you leave for a while? And I said, well, maybe I will. And I, I left. Uh, there, was a, there was a restaurant on the plaza back in those days called the, the, the Plaza Royale. Uh, old old uh, black men wore white jackets and their tablecloths were uh, starch and crisp. And the place was... Uh, clean and had the big old-fashioned bar and just a, was my favorite restaurant and, and I went there and there alone that night I I uh, I had a filet mignon and, and I had uh, I ate dinner and I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank and I got back to the hospital and the nurse looked at me and she said to me are you okay and I said well yeah, I'm okay. She said, you better go home. She said, you, you don't look too good. Well, I was drunk and what was the matter. Anyway, that was St. Luke's Hospital. And we lived in Shawnee then when Anthony was born. And uh, I went home and I lay down on the couch, uh, hands on. And I remember I, I could, the phone was ringing. It rang and it rang. It was kind of like, you know, when you're grieving and you hear the, the, the ringing and you dream. And I woke up, and it was the hospital, and they said, you better get here right away. So I jumped in the car, and here I go back to the hospital, and, and uh, he still wasn't born, you know, and fooled around, fooled around, fooled around. And they put me in a room, I remember, with a telephone. <coughs> and uh, they said, we'll call you when he's born. Now, with Joanne, I was in a waiting room with other people, 
but when Anthony, they, they put me in a room by myself with the telephone. And then I looked at that telephone, it was like an eternity. Then it finally rang. And the doctor got on the phone. He said, you had a boy. I said, I did. He said, yeah. He said he was 10 pounds, 1 ounces. I said, I'll be damned. I said, where is he? He said he just walked to the delivery room. Or wherever room he walked to. Nursery, he said. So he just walked to the nursery. <laughs> anyway, I went over there to see him. And uh, he looked like a price. I ran out of tape. I had to get a new uh, cartridge here. Start over. But getting back to Anthony, I, I remember I was in that room uh, on the phone. And came out. And then when I seen him at the nursery, his uh, his head came to a perk. And uh, his eyes looked like a prize fighter. He was all puffy and funny looking. He was funny looking when he was a baby. And uh, although Anthony was always a good kid, he uh, he never did cause uh, never did cause much trouble. And and, and he don't remember because he was too little. But when when uh, when Joey was born, and uh, mom had a lot of trouble with him. She. She uh, she almost died. I was really in bad shape there for a while. He, the, the, I don't know if you guys know the whole story, but the placenta uh, had, had was stuck uh, inside, and they had to go in and rip it out, and, and it caused a lot of hemorrhaging and a lot of a lot of troubles and, and uh, uh, really in bad shape. But at that time, I uh, the. Joanne and uh, Anthony, they stayed at my mom's family and Baba's house, and, and when Joey, Joey got out of the hospital, he was over at uh, mom's friend's house. But anyway, when when Anthony was uh, at uh, Mamma and Baba's, he he uh, he stuck with me, that kid, back then. He, uh, I don't know, he couldn't have been too old. Uh, Let's see, how old could have Anthony been when Joey was born? Four, I guess? I don't know, whatever he was. And, and uh, he stayed with me. Uh, he, he helped me a lot through those times. I, I, uh, I guess maybe I'm just an old, old emotional soul, but when things, things get to me, they get to me bad. And, and at that time in my life, I was, I was really in... Uh, Really in bad shape. I, uh, I thought I was going to lose her, and I thought everything was just going to come to an end. But uh, everything did, you know, everything did work out, and, and uh, we all we all did good. And then I remember uh, when, when Joey was born. He he was probably the, the best looking when he was a baby of all of them. He had uh, dark hair on his head. And uh, and then I remember we got him home and, and the hair fell out. I said, "What the hell's going on? The kid's going to be bald." But uh, I think back to those three kids. You three kids. Uh, they're all grown-ups to other people, but uh, I remember those kids. They were. Uh, they were good times, and I, I missed those kids.
Well, this is still Tuesday. I want to eat lunch. Squeak called, telling me about a cameo that was on the TV on QVC. So anyway, I got a one for Christmas. I'm mega happy. Well, I ate lunch. Let's see, I, I stopped off with uh, you kids. I, I might jump around a little bit because my memory don't work like it used to. I, things fade in and fade out. And I'll try to keep everything in order that I can. Well, anyway, after, after you kids were born, we had that house in Shawnee. Well, Anthony and Joanne were born there, lived there. And uh, then we went to Lawrence, then we went out in the country, and we came back to Parkville. Then we came to Liberty. And, uh, well, my mind's blank, I can't think now. You know, it's strange, I've been thinking about recording this for the last three weeks now, and when I lay awake at night, I think about all these things that I should say and could say on this tape, but uh, now I forget. I, I don't understand why. I, I, I didn't really want to do this tape, uh, because the chances are the only time you're going to hear it is when I'm dead. But, you know... We all got to go sometime, all of us do. I'm not really scared about dying. I, uh, I worry about uh, your mother, how she's going to be. I just hope you guys take care of her. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. Our esteemed theme music was composed and produced by the great E.E. E. Pointer of Kansas City's River Cow Orchestra. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Yeah.